This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and <clears throat> excuse me, so pleased that you can be with us. Uh, for the next hour, we take people's questions. Maybe there's an issue you're facing in your personal life, a challenge. Maybe there's a question from a text of Scripture you're studying, you're looking for its meaning or its application. Well, if we can be of help, we hope to, by God's grace. All you need to do, again, pick up the phone. Locally, the 843 exchange is 525-1859. We have many friends who listen through the Internet around the world, and you can reach us at our toll-free number, and that's 877. The call letter's WAGP980. Or you can text us directly here into the studio, and you can do that by texting TBL or emailing us, TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And we get a lot of questions from a lot of places and uh, that people email to us as well. So uh, let me just say, too, if you're a first-time listener, when your question is answered, uh, you will be emailed. Because sometimes, I mean, we get so many questions, I can't handle them all. Uh, but sooner or later, by God's grace, we hope to answer each one. And when your question is answered, sometimes it takes a month, you'll be emailed and you can go to the Bible line for that particular day and you'll see the questions that were asked. And, oh, mine's the fourth question. You don't even have to listen to the whole Bible line. You can just kind of scroll through and find your answer. All right, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor. Michelle Z writes, I'm looking to learn more about Christians and the businesses and organizations we support with our finances. I thought of you and would like to inquire which resources you might have or suggest regarding Christian shopping at companies like Amazon, Starbucks, Target, or Disney, for example. While those are more obvious examples, what about the less obvious ones like groceries and daily needs for living, etc.? This has become a popular topic of conversation around me recently, and I'm simply wanting to learn more from a trusted biblical perspective. And if you have a sermon series or other resources or recommendations on this subject, would you also include those? Well, uh, Michelle, it's a good question that you ask. And, you know, we're living in a culture that is habitually being downgraded. You know, it used to be in the 90s and the early 2000s, um, you know, when some organization uh, went live with some new, you know, deviation from biblical morality uh, people would protest it. So when Disney started, you know, waving the LGBTQ flag, the Southern Baptists officially said, hey, we're going to protest it and we're not going to support them. And it worked for a while. Target came out with their gay clothing line and in your face. And the thing is, it's gotten so widespread now, you can virtually go nowhere and not face these kinds of issues. And if you look deep enough and further enough, Probably just about all these different organizations somehow are involved in things that are less displeasing to the Lord. Uh, does that mean you don't go to a grocery store like Walmart 
uh, that has, you know, participated actively in Gay Pride Month, and I don't think so. I think it's more of an issue of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And, of course, uh, there the Apostle Paul is dealing with issues of liberty, when we have freedom to do something or not do something. So he says, concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know we have all knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. In other words, he's saying the mark of really legitimate Bible study and application is not just knowledge that in and of itself can puff up, but the application of knowledge through love that can build up. And so when you're dealing with an unbelieving world, too, you don't want to walk into Starbucks and say, you know, you guys are you know, a bunch of perverts and endorsing wicked behavior. You're going to win no one with that kind of attitude. Well, look, this is nothing new because the way the church was launched is how the church is going to end. The church was launched in a very dark time in human history, and the Bible teaches it will end in a very dark time in human history when men, most men's lives will grow cold and hard towards the Lord. So he says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So he's dealing with the problem of idolatry. It was common in the first century, and by the way, it's still pretty common in our day. About one-third of the 7.8 billion people on the earth still bow down and worship some object, and they call it a god. And Paul's saying, look, we, we know there's no such thing as a god, some, something that man might form out of wood or steel or gold and shape it and call it his god and worship it. There's only one true god. So what was happening in the first century? People would go to these idol-worship temples, and they would bring sacrifices. And again, most of the things that God ordained, man distorted. And so many false religions would bring animal sacrifices, and they took what God had established uh, as early as Genesis through Adam and Eve, and uh, through the instruction Adam and Eve gave to Cain, Cain and Abel, and the, the promise, what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel found in Genesis 3.15, that God is going to send a Savior. And so through the blood sacrificial system, God drove home a point that sin deserves death. And therefore, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. But animal blood cannot remove sin. And so when people came off the ark, you know, there were folks as the church uh, excuse me, as the world's population remultiplied, who distorted truth. And people continued with animal sacrifices, but to false gods. And so in the first century, there are many pagan idol worship temples. And you would bring a portion of an animal that they would use in the sacrifice, and then the rest was sold out back in the, um, in the market. And by the way, because they had so much of this meat, supply and demand, it was cheap. And a lot of Christians went there, and they bought their food there. And the question was, was it right to buy that food there? And Paul's argument is, listen, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. Neither are we the worse if we do eat, nor the better if we do not eat. But take care lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak. So Paul is saying, look, there's technically nothing wrong with buying meat in that market. 
it would be okay. But you don't want to exercise your liberty amongst weaker brethren who don't have that freedom and cause them to stumble. Because as Paul argues in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that we shouldn't do anything that would cause a brother to stumble. In fact, if you want to hear a message on this, I would say Romans 14 and 15 in my series in the book of Romans, I think would be very, very helpful because I deal with a lot of modern day expressions of what we would call gray areas. Gray areas, some that are not all that gray, but people are uncertain as to what they should do and uh, how they should live. So his point is, is you are neither committed for not going to Disney or going to Disney. Now, do I uh, try to sometimes uh, be very careful with where I would spend my money if I know some group is just flagrantly hateful towards God? If I don't have to support them, I won't. Now, I, I go to Starbucks. Uh, you know, they wave the LGBTQ flag every uh, June. I still go there. And I hope uh, sometimes that God might use me in Starbucks. I've had more than one occasion in Starbucks where a conversation has come up where I've met someone and I've had an opportunity to reach out to him, to invite him to church. One gentleman in the Starbucks in Bluffton uh, was on the edge of becoming a Christian right in the store. So I don't want to quell what God might want me to do in places he'd want me to go, but neither do I want to compromise my testimony. So each person needs to be convinced in his own mind. And so we're not talking about that truth is relative. Truth is absolute, but the application of certain principles like the one you're raising can be expressed in different ways in different people's lives. And that's what I walked through over about three hours of teaching in my series on Romans. So at least listen to the two hours in from Romans 14, and I think that will answer a lot of your questions. But that's the short answer. Let's go to the next one. All right. Frederick from Bangor, Maine writes, Are you familiar with the Christian group Hayovel, and what are your thoughts? Yes, I'm familiar with them. Um, not everyone listening is, so let me just give a little background. Um, there are some Christians, I think they were from Tennessee, if I remember, and one of uh, the family members was reading Isaiah 61, 5, where it says, Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. And they thought, well, this is a prophecy, so let's help God and we'll fulfill it. And so they started a movement where they recruit Christians to go to Israel who help plant vineyards, who harvest the crops for the Jewish people and so on. They do it, though, in a way in which when you go, if you sign up to go, you are not in any way, shape, or form allowed to evangelize the Jewish people. So let me just say this first. Any people that love Israel, I appreciate, because God will bless those who bless Israel. He'll curse those who curse Israel. So I think... um, You know, even our history demonstrates that when the government of the United States would make some kind of movement against Israel, you would immediately see typically some kind of heartache in the land, a hurricane or this or that. I don't think it's by accident. There's one brother uh, who actually documents it over 40 years. And in each time when they made decisions against Israel, it went against America. 
And I do believe that God has his hand on Israel, that just as he used Israel to bring about the first coming, the scripture is clear he'll use Israel to bring about the second coming. Hayovel uh, is, uh, are two Hebrew words that mean the jubilee. And the jubilee that Isaiah 61 is speaking about has nothing to do with what this Christian group is trying to do. It is speaking of a coming time when the Messiah returns, when he will rule and reign on the earth, the concept of Messiah ruling on the earth. And Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's speaking about the promises God made in the Old Testament where the Messiah would literally actually physically rule on the earth, where their swords would be turned into plow, you know, into plows and so on. And um, that has never happened, but it is going to happen. And in Isaiah 61, he's describing that time frame when the nations of the world will serve the Jewish people, the nations of the world that had persecuted Israel will actually admire Israel and serve Israel. And that's the text that, that's the context of the text. So, you know, you go to Israel and you'll have a tour guide and he'll say, well, look at the desert out there. It's just blooming like a rose and it's blooming like a rose because they have irrigation equipment, some of the most sophisticated in the world. One of my sons, Jameson, uh, met one of the gentlemen who went to Israel in the 70s, learned their irrigation methodology, brought it back to South Carolina, and transformed the peach orchards in the state of South Carolina, um, John Paris. And uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about because of the sophistication of irrigation techniques that the desert is going to bloom. He's talking about a future time in Israel's history when all that land around the Dead Sea will be farmland. It will be land that will produce. And the Dead Sea itself, men will fish in it. The Bible teaches that when Messiah comes back, he'll split the mountain in two and a river will flow all the way from the Temple Mount down to the Dead Sea. And in the Dead Sea, in which there's absolutely zero life, men will fish in it. That's never happened. It's going to happen when the Messiah returns. So they're trying to fulfill this prophecy is really a taking a con a, a, a passage out of a con out of context, but two, they're doing something far more serious than that. When they're telling people that you cannot evangelize the Jewish people when you're there, what they're really doing is they're fostering disobedience in the hearts of those who participate with them. When they sign a document saying they will not share Christ with Jewish people, um, they have been influenced by what's called dual covenant theology. And there's an organization called Kufi, Christians United for Israel. And John Hagee started it. And he embraces dual covenant theology, that Jews can be saved under the old covenant apart from believing in Jesus. That's wrong. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He didn't say, I am a way. He said, I am the way. And if he's not the only way to the Father, then he's no way at all. I mean, think your way through that. If he claims to be the only way to God and he's not, then he's either a liar or a deceiver, therefore a sinner, and he can save absolutely no one. Not to mention there's gross error in dual covenant theology as if God had a way of saving men under the law that is different from the way in which he saves people today. Look, when you go to heaven, if you're a believer, 
every person you will see there will be there because of the blood sacrifice of the Messiah. The only difference was perspective. They're on the other side of the cross. They were looking forward to a promise given as early as Genesis 3.15. I I preached a a message one year called the first Christmas message, and people thought I was going to use some New Testament text. It actually came from Genesis 3. It's the first promise of the gospel, and it is unfolded in type, in prophecy, through Genesis, and really all the way through the book of Malachi. And what you learn in the Old Testament is people in the Old Testament were saved by their belief that God would make a provision in the future through the Messiah. And so they were looking forward to the Messiah who would come. We look back at the Messiah who has come. And again, there are two pictures of Messiah in the Bible. There is a picture where he is the suffering servant, and there is the picture where he is the reigning Lord. And if you're a Jew living in uh, Israel under Roman domination, you would want the second picture. You'd want a Messiah who's going to crush the Romans and rule with a rod of iron. But that doesn't happen until his second coming. He first comes as a suffering servant. And Isaiah 61, 5 won't happen until his second coming, where the nations of the world will esteem a nation that is the most hated nation on the earth. It's unequivocal. Well, the single most hated nation on the earth is Israel. And uh, eventually, the Scripture teaches all the nations of the world will go against Israel. That will, that will include the United States and will happen uh, during the coming tribulation period. So, no, uh, I like what they're doing in terms of they want to love the Jewish people, but they are denying that there's one way of salvation, and they should, if anything, be using that as a platform and looking for open doors in which to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to and to have people sign a document promising they won't is to foster disobedience, and that certainly is not pleasing to the Lord. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Jeff from Phoenix, Arizona writes, I have on several occasions spoken to my teaching or senior pastor about errors in his slide presentations. Many times he has quoted revelations instead of revelation. He has also now quoted number, Thessalonian, Ephesian, and similar errors in plurality in his presentations. I'm also troubled that this has not been corrected or addressed by the church elders or other pastors. May I get some advice on how or who to address this with? My discussions are either ignored or thought not to matter to my teaching pastor. Well, Jeff, you're you're walking a narrow edge here. Um If you have trouble with your pastor, you would have had incredible trouble with Dwight L. Moody uh, because he butchered the king's English. And for that reason, many people did not want him to come to their pulpits when he was invited to England. And uh, in one particular uh, church, uh, when he went to preach, uh, Pastor Morgan said, Moody, Moody, these people love Moody. Why do they love Moody so much? And one of the women in his church said, well, though he, he ruins our English, he speaks to our hearts. And of course, God used Dwight L. Moody to bring about great revival, really more than revival, awakening in the hearts of, of lost people. So you need to be careful here because, listen, there are a lot of men of God who have never had the privilege and blessing to go to seminary, and there might be some fine nuances in terms of how they preach 
that you would not appreciate, you know, that he calls the book of Revelation, Revelations. There's obviously no such book. It is a single revelation that Christ gives to the apostle John. But look, if he's a man of God and he's trying to serve God, I remember with our family, we were up in the mountains of Tennessee and we went to this little country church up at the top of the hill and the pastor there worked hard during the week. Uh, he had another job, and then he'd study on Saturday night with the time he had. And he pastored this little church in this little tiny community that had like 35 people. And I still remember it because when we walked in with our family, with our five children, they went to the front of the church and they upped the numbers on the little board. They had this little board on the top where it said worship attendance and Sunday school attendance. And a lot of churches used to do that in years gone past. Uh, but he, um, he butchered the English language. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to improve. I'm sure I butcher the English language more often than not. But I think the biggest thing you need to do is look at the heart of the man. And if he is loving God and serving God as best he knows how, the majority of pastors in the United States have never been to seminary. Uh, They are, and there was a time when there were no seminaries. People just learned through their local church. And local churches ought to be committed to giving people a theological education and grounding. But the text that I would take you to would be uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. Let me read it to you. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. So he underscores three things, three ways in which a pastor labors uh, or serves. They labor among you. So it's hard work. And most people have no idea the amount of time especially if someone is earning their living from the gospel, that they may commit to preparing a sermon. And they have no idea. They, they think, well, the pastor just works a couple hours on Sunday morning, and that's it, and he's off the rest of the week. And there are three principal uh, dimensions to a pastor's job. One is he is to prepare himself in the Word. He's to pray, and to, he's to evangelize. Those are his three principal responsibilities, not to visit the sick in the hospital, though he may do that on occasion, to do a lot of things that you think he should do. Look, when the apostles, who were pastors, now obviously not all pastors are apostles, but all apostles are pastors. Now I know that because Peter calls himself a fellow pastor, a fellow elder in 1 Peter chapter 5. But to be an apostle, you had to have been and selected by Christ, and if that were true, you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do, and, um, and you saw him in his resurrected body. Those three things had to be true. With that said, they were pastors, and when they had an opportunity to serve tables, it's not that they were above that, but they said, look, you need to get some other folks to do this, because if we do it, we will fall short in some more critical areas of service that God has given to us. And we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So he speaks about those who labor among them, those who are over you. Leaders are recognized as being over the congregation. Uh, They rule. And so traditionally, historically, in the New Testament, biblically, there was a plurality of elders. Uh, You see this throughout 
the New Testament, when Paul gathers the church at Ephesus, he calls for the elders, not the elder, but the elders in Ephesus. There's certainly a point elder, what we might call a leader among equals, and so Jesus uh, addresses the point man. Today, we might use the term senior pastor in the seven letters to the seven churches found in the Revelation. But the church was run by a group of men. If any among you are sick, let him call for the elders, plural of the church, singular, not the elders of the churches, not the elder of the church, but the elders, plural of the church, singular. And so he speaks here about those in a plurality who labor among you, who have charge over you. And so they have charge over you. Obey your leaders, submit to them. Uh, that's what the scripture says. And so the local assembly is not a democracy where we all get together and we vote on things and whoever gets the most votes and you, you ask over, and how many of you think, you know, we should do it this way? All of you who think we should do it this way say, bah. And all of you who think we should do it this way say, bah. And they count the bahs over here and the bahs over there and whoever bahs the loudest gets their way. That's not the way the church is run, at least not biblically. So they labor over you, they have charge over you, and they give you instruction. And what are you to do? You are to esteem them highly in love because of their work. And so that should be your focus. Not whether or not he says Ephesians versus Ephesians or Revelation versus Revelations. Now, you might have a relationship with your pastor where you can say, hey, you know, um, you know, I, I wonder if uh, you have thought about this. I want to enhance your ministry, and I don't— Look, he, he may never get there, and you've obviously admonished him or encouraged him, I hope, once, and he he just didn't, for whatever reason, respond. And it may be his educational level. I don't know. But I think you would be wrong for nitpicking him like a Pharisee because that's really what you're doing and you need to stop. Let's go to the next question. All right. Robert from Okatee wants you to tell him about the new Calvinists and why amillennialism seems to be taking hold in the evangelical church. Well, first of all, new Calvinism is not new at all. It's a, it's a movement that's maybe relatively young in the history of the church, but it's not new um, in that they're coming up with a brand new set of teachings or doctrines. Uh, Calvinism is uh, usually credited to John Calvin, but certainly not uniquely. But since uh, he spearheaded the movement, the theology that he represented is uh, given his namesake, kind of like Methodism. Uh, it came from John Wesley, who, after he was converted, he, he came to Savannah, Georgia, not far from here, to convert the Indians. And on the way home, he was in a, ter- a horrific storm, and uh, he was scared for his life. But some of the believers on board, they were called Moravians. Moravians no longer have the gospel, but they did back then. They were a great denomination. Uh, they had a sense of uh, security that if they went down on the ship, they were going to heaven. He didn't have that. When he got back, of course, to uh, England, he went to Aldersgate Chapel, and on that day, in the providence of God, they were reading the introduction to Martin Luther's book 
on the book of Romans where he shares his testimony. And for the first time, Wesley, who had been a minister in the Anglican Church and a missionary here in the States to Savannah, he was converted. He came back, rode horseback up and down the coast, 80,000 miles. Thousands of people were converted. He had a very clear method on how to follow up new Christians. So they called them Methodists. And so they called them Calvinists. And we could go on with other denominational titles. Calvinism is more than just the doctrine of what election is. Most people think of it. It's actually a whole realm of theology. And one aspect of their theology is amillennialism. Amillennialism says there is no coming kingdom. Uh, millennial is the word for thousand. And so the revelation speaks of the fact that the Messiah will rule for a thousand years, five times in the course of a short spread uh, of verses. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And so he, throughout this, he says, uh, Christ um, reigned, they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so is he talking about a literal thousand years? Well, listen, when the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense or you will come up with sheer nonsense. And so amillennialism really came out of Augustine, uh, St. Augustine's theology. And Augustine, you know, was largely influenced by a guy named Tertullian. And Tertullian didn't want to have his head cut off by, you know, preaching that there's a coming king who all the nations of the world and all the kings of the world will submit to. So he tended to spiritualize some of the doctrines concerning the coming kingdom. And Augustine picked up on that. And he planted the seeds that later established Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church really starts around 575 AD, where the bishop in Rome uh, calls himself the Supreme Bishop and received the title Pope. They ended up backtracking all the way back to Peter, and then they've created this unbroken system of popes. In either case, the Roman Catholic Church embraced the concept that God was done with the body of Christ, uh, excuse me, with Israel, and that the body of Christ had now taken Israel's place, that we were the new Israel, that national Israel had no role at all, that God was done with the people of Israel, that the church had replaced Israel. Well, that's not true. It's not true at all. Uh, God made some unconditional promises to uh, the people of Israel, and those are unbroken promises, and we should respect them. I read the New Covenant in Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, and right after God gives the New Covenant, he makes very clear that as long as the sun is in the sky, as long as you see the moon and the stars, uh, that's how long I will love Israel. It's an unbroken commitment to the people of Israel. And so there's still a future for the Jewish people, and the Lord has not finished with them. But uh, what ended up happening is you have a guy like John Calvin who's converted out of Roman Catholicism, and he takes a lot of their doctrines, and he just puts a different spin on them. And he argues that, no, the new Israel is not the Roman Catholic Church. The new Israel is the body of Christ. And that's not true. Uh, that's just wrong. Calvin, Calvin was dead wrong on that. Um, but he still said that God had replaced 
Israel, national Israel with the body of Christ. He took each of their doctrines like baptism. He didn't say, as the Baltimore Catechism records, that baptism is the sacrament that washes away sin and instills salvation to the soul. He, he put a different spin on it in terms of redefining infant baptism. So he kept a lot of their uh, their doctrines, but he tried to put an evangelical biblical spin on them. And so Calvin sadly said some very, very hateful things about the people of Israel. And I'm sure when he met the Lord in heaven, he had great regrets. I'm sure like Luther, who said you should burn their synagogues, destroy their homes, don't allow them to travel. And most of you have uh, read that diatribe by uh, Luther and some of the hateful things he said about the Jews. They, they thought they were doing the church a service, um, that the Jewish people who'd rejected the Messiah in turn needed to be rejected. And it's because they had a distorted view. So what's happened is there's a new resurgence of Calvinism that has really come up in the last 30 years or so where uh, they basically are affirming a lot of the truths that Martin Luther and John Calvin uh, taught. And there was a book called Restless Re- uh, Young, Restless, and Reformed that came out about a decade or ago decade or so ago, and it tries to build a case for, for Calvinism. But I'm not totally surprised. Here's why. Because by this <clears throat> new movement not recognizing God's future for the people of Israel, what they are doing is they are planting seeds that will end up becoming anti-Semitic. Look, if you really believe that God's not done with the Jewish people, that God will bless those who bless Israel, and you really believe that, and you teach that and you preach that to your people, then the effect of truth is it has a way of dispelling error and dispelling darkness. We're like salt and light. But if you don't teach that, then that will make it far easier for these who in a growing force hate Israel. So you've got the whole boycott and divest movement BDS, Boycott, Divest, and Sanction Against Israel. So you've got these companies who say, boycott Israeli products, don't invest in their nation, put sanctions on certain products. And there's many people in our Congress who believe this, and there are certain companies in the United States that are following this. And that's because uh, Israel is no longer being esteemed and respected as a people. And we know in the end that all of the nations of the world, Every nation in the world, the Revelation teaches, will go against the people of Israel. And so, look, there's a lot of things in the Reform movement that is really good stuff. Uh, You know, they tend to be more biblically oriented. They tend to be more gospel-centered. They have their heads screwed on tight on the gender issues that uh, men should uh, serve in the role of pastor and an elder and deacon, and they really have their head screwed on straight on a lot of these things. But their eschatology, their doctrine of the last times is, is messed up, and their doctrine of um, salvation, soteriology, is messed up. They think that Christ didn't die for every man, that you can't look at anyone in the eye and say, God loves you, Christ died for you. No, they'll they'll couch everything in these terms that... You know, Christ died for those who will repent and believe. What they're saying in an expression like that is Christ doesn't 
die for everyone. God doesn't truly love the whole world, just the elect. That is those who will repent and believe. And so I think they have quelled evangelism. They can say, like J.I. Packer, who is a five-point Calvinist, he died a couple of years ago. He wrote a book that was very popular in the 1970s that I read as a new Christian called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And certainly God is sovereign in our salvation. No one would deny that. But he basically said that the elect are going to be saved, and so we just go out and find the elect. The problem is, is that this teaching really does great harm to the missions movement in the world. And so they can say what they want, but just look at the record. See if these new Calvinists are raising up evangelists that are committed to preaching the gospel, not just in the United States and around the world. See if they are the groups that are really sending missionaries. They are not. They are at the bottom of the rung. And so uh, they've done a disservice, in my view, to certain aspects of the gospel. And they have a certain, I think, pride with alcohol and tobacco. And so they sit around and they drink and smoke cigars and say it's all fine. And this is a freedom we have. And you know, this is not healthy. This is not healthy at all. So there are certain aspects I like. They're my brothers in Christ. There are certain aspects I dislike, and um, you're going to have to judge for yourself. If this is something you really want to study, I have a course in the Institute of Biblical Studies called Eschatology. Eschaton is last things, and so eschatology is the study of last things. And so we look at amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and how Christians at different times in human history had come up with these uh, divergent viewpoints. There's only one that's right. Look, infant baptism and post-conversion baptism aren't both right. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. They both can't be right at the same time. So you have to decide. Is credo-baptism correct or pedio-baptism? You have to decide. Um, And I think Like with that issue, you know, it's not by accident that about 90% of evangelicals worldwide practice post-conversion baptism, that pedio, pedos, child, infant baptism is a minority view. It always has been in the history of the church. And when I travel to countries like India or Ukraine or uh, China, and they ask questions about, you know, these new Calvinists, they say, like, where do they get this? How, How do they come to this? It does not come from a plain reading of Scripture. You have to be educated into some of these positions. The plain reading of Scripture would lead someone somewhere else. And so, anyway, let me get off that soapbox and go to the next question. All right. Stacy O. writes, Will babies and young children be taken to heaven at the rapture? And you kind of touched on this this past Sunday. Did I hit on that this past Sunday? Yeah, when uh, you were talking about the four penalties that uh, oh, David yeah. suffered. Yeah, oh, yeah, I did. I did. You're right. So let me go to that passage. We didn't actually get to those verses, but God will go on and um, explain uh, what happened in fulfillment of what the prophet Nathan said. And, you know, David, when he's given this parable about this rich man who comes and he's got plenty of flocks and he uh, has somebody who comes to his house and wanting to show hospitality, which is what every Jew would do and what most Middle, Middle Eastern people still do to, today. You know, he, he wanted to prepare a nice meal, so he goes to his next-door neighbor who has this one little ewe lamb, and 
and he butchers that. And of course, when David, who's a shepherd boy, hears of this case, thinking that, you know, this was something that actually happened, uh, Nathan comes back and says, you know, you're the man, you're the one I'm speaking about. Of course, David said the person who did such a thing must pay fourfold. And David did uh, pay fourfold for his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. It was not an issue of whether or not he was forgiven, but you can't erase the consequences of sin. You can't sow to the flesh and reap from the spirit. And so God is not mocked. Whatever man sows that he shall reap. And so when you sow, you sow uh, a certain kind of seed and you get back the same kind of crop. You don't sow a pear tree and get a fig bush. No, the seed is consistent. And when you sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh. And so um, you not only reap the same kind of uh, harvest, you reap later than you reap. And so the consequences were not immediate. Uh, It's not until almost a year transpires, a minimum of nine months, because the baby's already alive and born, that David is confronted with his sin. And maybe he thought everything was just fine. When you put a seed in the ground, you can't come back 30 minutes later and look for a sprout. It takes time for it to germinate and to sprout. So you reap like you sow, you reap later than you sow, and you'll reap more than you sow. You put one little tomato seed in the ground, and you'll get a stalk with maybe 10 tomatoes on it. So God brought justice in a way that, well, David had to live with it. And so we read, then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child. In other words, he prayed for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. The servants of David were afraid. Uh, So he's deeply grieved, and he fasts for seven days, and then finally the child dies, and they're afraid to tell him that the child is dead. They said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might harm himself? If he's this grieved and the child is still alive, what's he going to do when he finds out the baby is dead? And I think he might hurt himself, commit suicide. But when David saw this, saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. And so he asked, is the child dead? They said, he's dead. So David arose and he washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then after he worshiped God, he came to his own house and he requested that they set food before him and he ate. And the servants are kind of scratching their heads and they're saying, what is this thing that you've done while the child was alive? You fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. God can change his mind from a human perspective. We call that an anthropomorphism. Uh, When it speaks of God repenting, uh, God doesn't one day wake up and say, oh, I've got this bright idea and I'm no, it's from a human perspective. And, and God, even when he brought prophets like Jeremiah, he'd say, he would tell them, look, you know, I'm going to bring down a people from the north and they're going to just crush you. But if you repent, we can avert it all. 
And so if they would repent, God would relent, but they wouldn't repent. And so David's really legitimately thinking, and rightly so, that maybe God would spare the child. And so um, they say, he said, when the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. And I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David believed with all his heart, and this is recorded by the prophet Samuel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he would go to him someday. Why? Because of the biblical truth that babies are not accountable. And it's taught not just in the Old Testament, but it's taught in the New Testament. Do you remember Jonah? Uh, Jonah is the prodigal prophet in the first chapter. He's running from God and And then God uh, deals with him, swallows him with a great fish, and he becomes the praying prophet. And then the fish says, I can't stand this guy, and throws him up. And he becomes the preaching prophet. And then the people of Nineveh repent, and he becomes the pouting prophet. And uh, he's sitting under a plant that God raised up and grew overnight and then destroyed with a worm. And he's all sad about his little plant. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then Yahweh said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, in which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I have not had compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left? not to mention a bunch of animals there. What's he saying? Nineveh has a population of about 600,000 people, but there's 120,000 kids who don't know the difference between left and right. And God is just saying to Jonah, don't, don't, don't you even care about the kids? You know, and so God has compassion on children. And so when you come into the New Testament, Jesus expands this truth. And so to answer your question on the rapture, what you really have to answer is, what's the status of little children who die without having confessed Jesus as Lord? People say, well, what's the age of accountability? There's not an age of accountability. There's a point of accountability, and there's a difference. To say that there's an age, you know, it's 12, and some people have come up with that date because Jesus is in the temple reasoning with the Pharisees and the scribes from the Torah truth. And they say, well, you see, he was able to uh, integrate and understand biblical spiritual truth. Well, he actually knew a whole lot more than they did uh, because he was God the Son and had an intimate relationship with the Lord where he was instructed by God in his human mind and body. With that said, there's not an age. It might be 12 for some child. It might be nine for another. I was real concerned when a nine-year-old came into my office and so sad, so sad. You know, he, he had a hardness of heart towards the things of God. He was just nine years old and he had a hardness of heart. And I thought this kid has been exposed to evil. Um, maybe the parents' guards were down. I don't know but it doesn't just happen. And so as parents, we're charged to guard the hearts of our children. Watch over your own heart with all diligence because from it flow the springs of life. And many a parent doesn't watch over his own heart. And so he's imperceptible to what's happening around him. In either case, um, 
that child, as far as I was concerned, and God alone knows, understood what he was saying to me that day. He understood the plan of salvation, and he was saying no. And I prayed for that child many times. They soon left that military couple. But I prayed for that child many times that he might find Christ. And so here in Matthew 18, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Question, does Jesus ever use an illustration with an untruth in it to teach truth? Of course not. Every single illustration, every single parable that Christ uses the one who is the truth, he uses truth to teach truth. And so for Jesus to liken the kingdom of God to little children and for that not to be true would be for him to use an untruth to teach truth. Whoever therefore humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In uh, the next chapter in Matthew nineteen fourteen, Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Whoever receives one such child in my name, back in Matthew 18, 5, receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. You know, I just think about what's happening in our own county. You know, they're teaching kids in middle school in Beaufort County, South Carolina, that transgenderism is okay. You know, and kids are coming home, dad or mom, am I a boy or a girl? You know, now you've got these parents, well, what are you going to have, a boy or a girl? We don't know. Oh, you didn't have the ultrasound? No, we had the ultrasound, and it's clear what biologically the sex is, but we don't know what the sex is. I mean, this is just like craziness. But this is what happens when a nation rejects God. God gives them over to depraved mind. He gives them over to a reprobate mind, to an upside-down mind, is really the thought behind the text. And that's the mind of many people. And so we've got these people who are abusing children. This is nothing but child abuse, what's going on in our county, in our nation with children, where they're questioning just basic morality. And they're being taught how to have safe sex and that maybe they are homosexual and little kids. I mean, this is evil, but you think God's going to put up with this much longer? I'm telling you, he is setting the stage for the return of his son to come home uh, to get his people and then to uh, take us to his home in heaven. And then he's going to unfold the tribulation period and the gospel is going to be preached to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what we haven't been able to pull off in 2,000 years, he's going to complete during that seven-year period through 144,000 converted Jews and two witnesses on the Temple Mount and, and an angel who also preached the gospel. And so um, when that happens, when that rapture comes... God in his providence will take up the unaccountable children. You say, well, what about a pregnant mom? Well, uh, again, I, I think if the mother's a believer, the child would go. If the mother's an unbeliever, the child would probably go. You say, is it possible that God could leave a, a five-year-old behind? Yes. How so? Well, if God in his providence sees that that child is going to live through all seven years— and that five-year-old child could become a 12-year-old child, 
and maybe at eight or nine understand completely, clearly, crisply the gospel and and then believe, then they have a chance to believe. Um, just like a, a child of the same age might say no. So God will work out the mechanics of all that. But what we can definitively dogmatic, dogmatically say is that God does not hold little children accountable for something they cannot understand. So let's bring it down to severely retarded people um, or people with, I know people don't like to use the term retarded, so I mean no disrespect. Down syndrome, they don't like to use that. Well, you know what I mean. So save the letters, okay? Um, with that said, there are some people with mental incapacities that are spiritually sharp. We just had a woman in our church, she's 28, she started 10 years ago, 10 years ago, copying the Bible. And she copied from Genesis to Revelation every single word in the Bible. Christianity Today called, uh, Focus on the Family called last week. Um, They're all running these national stories on her now. Because this woman with Down syndrome copied the entire Bible. She is so spiritually sharp and perceptive. And had she rejected Christ, I think she would have been lost. What about aborted babies? They'll go to heaven. Do you think God creates a baby? And by the way, God is the author of creation. He wrote certain physical laws into the physical universe to make conception happen. But he is still the one who takes responsibility for creation in the womb. You think God creates a a little baby in a womb only to have that baby ground up in some abortion mill and then sent to hell for an eternity? Not at all. So God has answered this question. And by the way, we answer this question in a far more depth in the discovery class. It's one of the 10 most asked questions. One question, the flip side is what about people who've never heard the gospel? The flip question is what about people who can't believe the gospel because they don't have the mental capability in which to respond? So anyway, that's a great question. I hope it answers it for you. Well, Rick... Uh, we're running out of time. I don't think we have time for another question today. Well, speaking of the discovery class, you have an equivalent on Wednesday evenings, the basic discipleship uh, course, and that's going to be uh, cranking up again in another month or so, right? It will. So um, we'll we'll have we'll be interfacing with uh, a course on Moses that Pastor Larry has been doing, and I'll be doing basic discipleship from time to time, and. Uh, 18 of the 45 weeks are online right now. You can go to searchthescriptures.org. There's a phone app you can download. And uh, we are really giving it an in-depth shot. So, for instance, the prayer handout before that was a three-page outline is now a full note-taking outline, and it's 31 pages long. So you'll learn it like I was teaching it myself. And these are the truths that are bedrock truths to the Christian faith, to walking with God and to maturing in Christ. Well, thanks for joining us today. God willing, we'll be back next Tuesday here at 11 o'clock. God bless you.